0: This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I spoke with Gareth Evans, ACQC. Gareth was a cabinet minister in the Hawke-Keating governments and between 1988 and 1996 was a foreign minister. He spent 21 years in Australian politics and has written a new book called Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency. Why should Australia care about poverty, human rights atrocities, environmental catastrophes, weapons proliferation or any other problems that afflict faraway countries, especially if they don't have any direct or immediate impact on us? Gareth Evans explains why Australians should demand better, both morally and ethically from their governments, on the international stage. He says there is both a moral and national interest imperative to do so. We discuss this and more in the context of the newly elected Albanese Labour Government. Then I was joined by Dave Goulson. Dave is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in the UK. He joined me to discuss his latest book, Silent Earth, averting the insect apocalypse. We talk about how insects have been misunderstood the vital contributions they make to our ecosystem and our lives, as well as the concerning research detailing insect decline. Dave shares the reasons behind these numbers, as well as what can be done to prevent an insect apocalypse. And finally, we heard from historian Dr. Emma Shortis. Emma is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, and she stopped by to discuss the latest in US politics. Emma talks about the real-life consequences of the Supreme Court's overturning of the Roe v. Wade judgment. She also discusses gun control reform since the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting and Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. I am really delighted and honoured to welcome onto the program someone who has a really a lot to say and a lot of important things to say on the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Gareth Evans, ACQC, is a former Cabinet Minister in the Hawke-Keating Labour Governments. Gareth is also a Distinguished Honorary Professor at the Australian National University, where he was a Chancellor for about nine years. He was also a cabinet minister more broadly during those Labor governments and held other posts in addition to foreign minister. He was also attorney general, minister for resources and energy, minister for transport and communications. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, He was foreign minister between 1988 and 1996, and of course had many other parliamentary roles during his 21 years in Australian politics. Today, we're going to be talking about Gareth's new book, It's out through Monash University Publishing with their In the National Interest series, which I'm so pleased I've had the great pleasure of chatting with a whole range of people from this series. Gareth's book is called Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency. And we're going to be discussing that particular book in the context of the present day. Of course, it was written and released uh, when Scott Morrison was still prime minister although clearly an election was very much on the horizon so we knew that a labour government was certainly a a real possibility and now we are right in that moment at the moment they have been uh, overseas engaging in a lot of multilateral forums having many bilateral important meetings with our allies uh, including france the United States, Japan, India, et cetera. So I'm very pleased to welcome Gareth Evans onto the program. Hi there, Gareth, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, good morning, Amy, my great pleasure to speak with you.
0: It's uh, really important to talk with you about this topic, I think, because it's not something that we tend to discuss publicly very often. Um, You know, this idea of being a good international citizen, Though I know that it's something as you write in the book that you certainly focused on during your time as foreign minister and it was a priority for you and you've done quite a lot of deep thinking about this uh, not only the conceptual framework of what good international citizenship is but also its philosophical underpinnings so I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about your time as foreign minister and how that influenced your conceptualization of what a good international citizen is.
1: Well, when I was Foreign Minister back in prehistoric times, as far as some of your (laughs) listeners at least will be concerned, uh, will be aware. Uh, Really, there's a fantastic opportunity to, for Australia to make a mark on the world stage and to do so not just in the very traditional foreign policy areas of preoccupation, security interests and economic interests, but also across the range of what I call decency issues or good international citizenship issues. Those where uh, what's involved is uh, respect and affirmation for human rights, Uh, for providing development assistance or aid, for helping uh, respond to the best of our capacity, to mass atrocities occurring elsewhere, to conflicts occurring elsewhere, helping to mop up the consequences of those uh, conflicts and atrocities in terms of refugee outflows, and also making our mark when it came to some of the big existential issues where we perhaps didn't stand to immediately benefit, but where the world certainly did if we got it right. And we're all aware now what those existential issues are, pandemics, climate change, and uh, of course, the, the horror potential of nuclear war. On all of those fronts, um, it was a time when, uh, you know, the world was, uh, we'd escaped the, uh, the shackles of the Cold War. Everything seemed possible. Uh, the United Nations Security Council was working cooperatively for the first time. There was a possibility for consensus, and there was a possibility for countries like us. Um, to really help create um, an international agenda on a lot of issues that have previously been uh, neglected, and to um, and to make a big contribution in terms of, of coalition building with other like-minded countries to to build momentum for for change right across that whole spectrum of areas. So um, Australia was very active in arms control issues like chemical weapons and on the the nuclear front, uh, getting some thinking going about the the possibility for uh, actually getting serious for the first time about the elimination of nuclear weapons. Uh, We did some serious work on the environment, um, leading the way, for example, on creating an Antarctic wilderness park uh, free of mining and exploration. Uh, We made a big contribution to... um, to peacemaking and human rights in our fight against Apartheid in South Africa, in which we were prominent and leading the charge there, uh, with Bob Hawke being particularly effective as Prime Minister. Uh, we played a role in in peacemaking in Cambodia, in overcoming the the terrible horrors of the uh, the genocidal period of the Khmer Rouge and the ongoing civil war, and just generally, it was it was a period which um, probably one of the most active periods for Australian foreign policy. But it was a period in which which gave me a sense of the art of the possible, I suppose. When it comes to doing things which are not just focused immediately on traditional areas of of self-interest, protecting your security and advancing your prosperity, but actually making the world a better place. And uh, I've, I've carried with me that sort of frame of reference uh, really you know, throughout my years as foreign minister and uh, certainly subsequently where I've seen this as a, a very high priority for governments, even though it's not traditionally thought of, as you began by saying, as necessarily the core business of our foreign policy, our international policy.
0: No. And I know that you also write in this book that you had influences that um, that shaped you at melbourne university as a philosophy student when you were thinking and grappling with issues of ethics and morals what was a, a framework to guide one by in terms of one's actions
1: yeah well i mean i saw all this stuff as being very much in the first instance a moral imperative Doing what we should be doing to the best of our capacity to advance human rights and aid and poverty alleviation and all the other things I've just been uh, been talking about. I saw it as a moral imperative. How you approach the issue of moral imperatives, I suppose, depends a lot on your cultural upbringing, your philosophical upbringing. If you're uh, like you and me, uh, you know, well, Penny Wong um, studied philosophy at university, that, that helps sort of shape and frame the way in which you think about ethical issues and i was exposed as you probably were to utilitarian arguments john rawls arguments kantian arguments as as well as of course a lot of people coming at these issues from a purely religious perspective and what's what's intriguing is that whether your approach is one or other of those secular philosophical traditions or whether your approach is is religiously founded and not just christian religion but <clears throat> hindu is um, Hinduism, Islam, or or Buddhism, or anything else, that there is some, some real common threads running through this in terms of the the moral obligations that we we quite properly identify. As a British philosopher once said, um, all these things are really just like climbing the same mountain from different paths, and I think that's a nice way of thinking about the um, you know what the source of our moral obligations actually are. So uh, you know we, we'll we'll come at these issues in multiple different ways, but I'd hopefully that the common theme running through it all is respect for the dignity and humanity of our, of our fellow human beings. And uh, that, that's at the core of, um, of what I describe as good international citizenship, because just as individuals have that kind of moral imperative to, to respond to these issues, and um, so too, I think, to countries as a whole. And we should regard it as not just an optional extra, uh, but as the core business of our foreign policy to get right.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, you point out in this book that we have both a moral imperative but also a national interest imperative to be and be seen to be a good international citizen. You point out really that there is this hard-edged or hard-nosed person uh, foreign policy approach and domestic policy approach to being a good international citizen that you would hope appeals to the realists as much as to the idealists to kind of bring them into the fold. Could you explore that a little bit for us and explain what you mean by national interest imperative?
1: Yeah, What what's important is to be able to persuade the cynics, the sceptics, the hardheads who are legion um particularly in the higher circles of public service and and government. Um, The finance ministers, the bean counters, who want to know why you want to spend money on foreign aid when it's not going to immediately and directly benefit Australians. Um, Charity begins at home. All this sort of argument is a very familiar one when you're trying to advance the kind of agenda that I'm talking about. So what I've always regarded, going back to my time as foreign minister, as important, is to create the, the argument for decency, the argument for being a good international citizen, not just in moral in terms, moral imperative terms, because it is the right thing to do, but as you say, as a national interest in its own right as well. I like to describe good international citizenship as sort as as of a third category of national interest. Being and being seen to be a good international citizen, to me, ranks right up there alongside the, the traditional duo of um, security and, and prosperity, And the reason I argue there's a hard-headed return, uh, as well as a a purely, you know, warm-in-a-glow return, is is essentially threefold, three arguments. One is is the reputational return. There's absolutely no doubt that countries that are seen to be good international citizens um, do benefit internationally in all sorts of quite hard-headed ways. They're seen as good countries to invest in, to trade with, to visit as tourists, to send to 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 participate in higher education in, uh, to work with in international forums, to support for international positions. All these reputational things. What's what's become known in the trade as a soft power is just uh, just incredibly important and countries ignore that dimension at their peril and what it what it can do is um, is generate you know hard-headed returns in terms of trade in terms of tourism in terms of student uh, visits and all the rest of it um perhaps a more cynical example that i'd like to that I often use um shock some people but it's, it's to make the point that Sweden, for example, which is everybody's idea of a good international citizen, totally squeaky clean Mm. over decades in terms of its commitment to human rights and arms control and very high levels of international aid, Um, quintessential good international citizen also happens to be one of the world's biggest suppliers of conventional weapons, Mm. Um, simply because it's the kind of country that everyone is comfortable dealing with. the kind of country that Others trust and emulate, want and, and uh, you know want, want to be want to deal with, and a very happy deal. with. So there's that dimension. The second dimension is um, pretty obvious: it's reciprocity. We're all familiar that if um, you know if you do something that helps someone else, that other person is that much more likely to want to do something to help you, and that works. Uh, just as much internationally as it does individually. Um, if we help a country with disaster relief, with its piracy problem, or, or you know, some other issue which is unique to that country, that country will be that much more willing to help us on an issue that that matters to us, like uh, you know, people trafficking or uh, outflow of of um, you know, drugs or, or anything of that kind that we, we might be dealing with, you, you'll you find a willingness to be reciprocal and to and to return. And that might take the form of a, a vote in, for an international position or it might take the form of a strong policy support where we need it when it comes to, um, you know, dealing with refugee outflows or whatever. So that element of reciprocity is a very hard-headed return. The third hard-headed return is, um, is simply... Being a good international citizen does help in getting things done. Those things, like the, addressing the big existential risk issues we talked about, pandemics and climate and, um, and nuclear holocaust avoidance, um, that might not be the most immediate uh, positive set of returns for us. There might be short-term costs involved for us, as there obviously are with fossil fuel departures and so on in the context of climate change. But nonetheless, very important that these big things do get done eventually, very important in the global interest and ultimately in our own interest. And if you have a reputation and have a record and a commitment as a good international citizen, a willingness to engage Cooperatively and collaboratively in the solution of these regional and global public goods problems, there's obviously that much better a chance of those those problems being effectively addressed. So I think it is important to to put that that realist um, touch on this argument, and not just uh, depend on the on the moral argument, because um, it's the, it's the sort of thing that makes governments public servants, senior ministers, that much more receptive uh, to behaving in the way that um, decency would demand.
0: Indeed, yeah. And you've mentioned there Sweden, and that's such a brilliant example, really. And you also point out that Scandinavians in general, especially Sweden and Norway, have been regarded by the wider world as a good international citizen, uh, also saying that canada and new zealand have not been far behind those uh, that group of nations you also say and this is something that's you know pretty true is that australia likes to think of itself in that company we often try and you know piggyback off new zealand to think that we have that kind of level of status as being you know the friendly um nation down the bottom and um and it's something that I think perhaps in the early thousands, we were still very, you know, blinded by to think that we truly were that middle power, the diplomatic one who came to solve some of the fights. But as we've seen in the in the thousands, you know, going to many wars in the Middle East and uh, not acting on climate change and being treating refugees cruelly, Australia really cannot say that we are a good international citizen and you have actually really charted beautifully the history of Australia's action Mm. in this regard. Could you share with us how Australia more generally has declined in in its ability or in its actions um, and Mm. on a world stage in particular so that it doesn't necessarily fit the criteria of being a good international citizen?
1: Yeah, what I, what I say in this little essay is that our record overall has been patchy uh, at best, lamentable at worst and for the most part, certainly in the last decade or so, embarrassingly poor against all the benchmarks I mention. And spilling that out on overseas aid, we have in fact been the worst performed of any rich country in the world in terms of the decline in our generosity over, in fact, many decades, not just recently. Um, On human rights, um, we've had a great record in the past on issues like apartheid. Uh, but more recently have just gone missing uh, too often. And what matters is your reputation in this respect matters at least as much on what you do domestically as what you do internationally. And some of the the domestic shortfalls in that respect have been noticed and and have been important limitations in our capacity to exercise any kind of moral credibility externally. And um, on the Middle East issues, Palestine in particular, on Myanmar recently, recent times, we have in fact, you know, been conspicuously, I think, on the, on the wrong side of history. So too with our um, contributions to international peace and security, we've done some really um, pretty good things in the past, and acknowledged as such uh, the Cambodia peace settlement, I suppose, preeminent among them. But um, and I would say that our bipartisan response before the change of government to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a totally morally and legally indefensible invasion, uh, is a pretty good example of good international citizenship, because there, there's no immediately obvious um, security or economic return to us we're, we're doing that because it is the right thing to do you know, to join the the crusade against um, Russian misbehavior but um, but we really have gone missing in recent years in terms of any other contribution and certainly in relation to peacekeeping contribution to um, UN uh, peacekeeping missions which are still incredibly important in stabilizing countries in in despair uh, we've gone from thousands of international peacekeepers from hundreds which was traditionally the norm down to having less than 50 australians um, scattered around i think just four different missions in uh, around the world and that's not something a country of our size should be should be proud of and our capacity to make a make a difference um, when it comes to the um, the big existential issues, um, which are, again, part of my, my set of benchmarks on pandemics, um, we haven't really been remotely as generous as we could have been, like most West Rich Rich Western countries we've been hoarding vaccines for our own use and being pretty miserly in terms of distributing them around the region where they and the uh, the developing world where they are still desperately needed. Our contribution to Covax, the international financial mechanism for um, for vaccine distribution support, has been uh, has been minimal. In the case of um, climate change, I hardly need to spell out there that our record uh, until the change of government has been absolutely lamentable as a As a a universally perceived laggard in terms of meeting our responsibilities there. And on nuclear weapons, where in the past we have made a major contribution with the Canberra Commission, uh, helping to change the normative debate about the uh, absolute unacceptability of nuclear weapons, Uh, the Australia-Japan Commission that uh, Kevin Rudd initiated. We've had a leadership role in articulating policy ways forward, Uh, but that's gone completely missing over the last few years um, in which we've just been, you know, fellow traveling as usual with the United States, expressing undying love for nuclear weapons and everything associated with them without stopping to think through the, you know, the terrible consequences of that most indiscriminately inhumane uh, weapon of all. So we've got a lot of ground to make up, I think, in recovering the reputation that we have periodically enjoyed. Refugees is, a, I think, an absolutely crucial issue in this respect, which you've mentioned, both of us have mentioned. In the past, and um, the Fraser government, Uh, did brilliantly, I think, in accepting against a lot of resistance from my side of politics, uh, the massive outflow of Indochinese refugees following the uh, the Vietnam War, Uh, Bob Hawke's um, grace and uh, generosity to um, Chinese uh, potential uh, refugees. Um, after the Tiananmen uh, massacre, uh, was, uh, was 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 another feather in our cap. But in recent years, I think there's been a race to the bottom from both sides of politics, from which we haven't yet extracted ourselves. And um, while I, for one, I'm willing to support uh, boat turnbacks because of the larger issue of deaths at sea and people smugglers, which, which is a, a human rights catastrophe in its own right. I think uh, we've completely overdone it, particularly when it comes to offshore processing, which I can't see as being um, remotely necessary in the present environment, and um, which has put us really on the wrong side of history yet again, I think, and reputationally and in the bad books of a lot of other countries, because of our perceived selfishness in that respect, so we, we've got a lot of ground to pick up. But we, there are things in the past we can, we can point to, and Australia has had a reputation in the past as, uh, as a good guy, but um, it's uh, not not been so good in recent times.
0: No, and you you mentioned there the United States. That is something that had sprung to my mind as well, especially because we're often reminded, I think, of just how intertwined Australia's interests are with the United States, especially its military uh, capabilities, its actions overseas in that regard. And I wondered, is that one of the reasons why Australia is not necessarily such a good international citizen is because a lot of its interests appear to be tied up with the United States, for example, thinking of Israel as one of those examples where there is tension um, and a reluctance to make any kind of, you know, position um, or take a stand in regard to the way that it's treating the Palestinians at the moment. You know, I was wondering about the level of independence of Australia's foreign policy and whether that's a factor.
1: Well, I think we do run the risk of being perceived to be um, acolytes of the United States in a way that's a little bit demeaning and certainly undermines any any soft power that we might otherwise have. Um, I don't think we should over-exaggerate the US dimension to that. I mean... Uh, That becomes very important when we're considering how we should be reacting to China and a lot of the other uh, real issues in immediate national security and immediate uh, economic interests. We need to be pretty careful about um, maintaining our independence and maintaining our credibility. Uh, I don't want us to walk away from the alliance relationship, um, which has been of great benefit to us, unquestionably in the past, and still is in terms of logistics and intelligence support and so on. But um, I do think it is critical that we not become totally enmeshed in the American warfighting machine, um, in the way that um, a lot of people fear might be the case if we we overdo the um, the relationship, particularly in the context of the new nuclear-propelled submarine. Uh, but um, we, we, you know, we've got to be very careful about that. Um, and I, I, for one, um, in my own experiences as, um, as foreign minister it makes me believe that we we do far better in our relationship with the United States when we, when we do make clear our own independent decision-making capacity and willingness. We do better than when we uh, then we simply roll over and are seen as a, a routinely reliable supporter for anything the U.S. might choose to do, including in. Engaging in indefensible wars in Vietnam and the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and one of my one of my best examples of that is um, is my own experience as foreign minister and dealing with uh, with successive American governments. And in particular, I remember a conversation with James Baker, the former U.S. Secretary of State, who um, called me up on one occasion, early 90s, late 80s, and said, "Look." Um, You, Australia, we, United States, share a common interest in trying to get the chemical weapons convention done. It's been stuck in Geneva, being negotiated multilaterally for the last 20 years. Nothing's happening. It really is important to get this one right. We're too big and ugly, he basically said, uh, for us, the United States, to be able to do this uh, by ourselves or even to take the lead on this. But you, Australia... Uh, who share our values and our commitment on this have been – and this is almost exactly his words – look, you've been making life difficult for us visibly in recent years by taking independent positions on a whole bunch of things. I think one issue was most favoured nation trading status for China was was the issue du jour um, Mm -hmm. behind that conversation. Um, he said, look, you know, you've been making it clear that you're, you're not just there as our, as our clone uh, and not just there to do our bidding, but making your own independent judgments. And under those circumstances, you're perfectly equipped to take a leadership role in, in getting this done. And uh, what I'd like you to think about is hosting a big international conference and then taking forward the negotiations on the back of that in Geneva, which is exactly what we did and it was one of our biggest achievements in foreign policy. And I think that's, that's a very salutary example of the uh, of the kind of thing uh, that it is important for any country to do. That's maintain its dignity, maintain its self-respect, maintain its independence. On human rights issues that, that you mentioned, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the Palestine-Israel issue. There's a little bit of pressure from the United States, but mainly the pressure we're responding to there is is homegrown. I mean, the um, you know the the Liquid Party lobby in Australia is pretty formidable as it is in many other countries, and um, is deliberately confusing the issue of anti-Semitism with um, concern for overreach by the Israelis in their occupation of the West Bank and, and Gaza um, is, is concerning and is an issue that I've been personally very involved with for a very long time. But I think um, that's a matter of the nervousness of Australian politicians on both sides to um, you know, to domestic political pressures rather than anything from the United States. So I, w- I wouldn't over-egg that particular pudding I think um, at a lot of these a lot of these issues um, it's our own decisions we're talking about on aid on human rights and on our response to the existential issues on our response to peacekeeping and peacemaking opportunities to refugees all of these things where we've gone off the rails we've been less than good international citizens I think it's been really pretty much all our own work rather than anything we can we can blame on our relationship with the US
0: mm. I'm speaking with Gareth Evans former cabinet minister in the Hawke Le- Keating Labor governments. And We're talking about his book, Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency. Um, I appreciate your answer about that and the United States, and I was also thinking about China obviously being the other major superpower in the world, and clearly it's been very topical, especially Australia's diplomatic relationship with China, uh, the Morrison government in particular and the way it behaved towards China and also clearly the renewed relationship and the opening of communication channels between Australia and China now um, under this new Albanese Labour government. And you address some of these issues, especially around human rights and how one as a good international citizen can address human rights issues with different countries, but do it in a way that is diplomatically smart and respectful, but also getting your point across. Um, You talk about emphasising the universality of the rights that are in question, avoiding any hint that you're in the business of exporting your own countries or Western values and to respect the ground rules of neighbourhood civility and avoid overdoing Australian-style directness in face-to-face communication. I wonder if you could reflect on... On that, especially with China as an example, and where you think uh, it might be heading now, at least, um, under this Labor government, and whether we have the capacity to be able to go back to that style of diplomacy instead of this megaphone type of diplomacy that has uh, alienated and... You know, basically disrupted our trade relations among many other things.
1: Well, our relationship with China is in desperate need of a reset, and I'm glad to see the present government inching its way forward in in that direction, not quite as fast as I would like, but uh, nonetheless being a lot more sensible, I think, and more balanced in the way we're approaching it than was the case under the Morrison government, where the rhetoric really was just getting completely out of hand. And I think we were seriously distorting the nature of the the threats every country has to deal with potential threats with other countries' capability rather than their actual or, or perceived intent. And I don't resist a lot of the extra defence spending and so on that's uh, now being contemplated in response to that that changed geopolitical environment. But we, we have to be very, very careful about uh, not overdoing it and not over-egging that particular pudding like a few others. Um, and there's ways in which we can, I think, move out of that impasse by focusing in particular particular on areas of potential common ground and climate is quintessentially um, the issue on which uh, I think we can find common ground with China and should be very actively uh, pursuing that. On the question of um, human rights um, issues generally, I mean, this this is always a hard one for government and my mantra uh, as foreign minister essentially was was this, of course do that which is productive, which has a chance of, of changing the position for the better on the part of the the people on whose behalf you you're advocating. Um, don't worry too much about doing that which is unproductive uh, in the sense of not obviously or immediately bearing fruit, uh, because water on a stone over time can make a difference. And it is important that a message um, get through to other countries that they're not completely immune from scrutiny in terms of the misbehaviour in which they might be engaged. And in that context, I've made it practice to make constant representations to other countries based on amnesty lists of political prisoners or imminent executions, and uh, sometimes to the irritation of my diplomats, but I think in a way that uh, didn't very often bear fruit, but nonetheless was important and an example of good international citizenship, I think, at work. My my third element in my little mantra, however, is, um, is avoid doing that which is counterproductive, avoid doing that which makes things actually worse for the people you're trying to help. And there is a sense in which which um, sometimes, you know, megaphone diplomacy on human rights issues can be quite uh, counterproductive. My best example, I think, in that respect is in relation to the the very vexed issue of Indonesia and East Timor, when um, it was the case that with my colleague Ali Alatas, we were very close to getting an understanding that Indonesia was going to move in terms of taking the military out of east timor recognizing culture language putting more resources in and generally you know changing the whole framework of its relationship with uh, with east timor not to the point of independence that came later but nonetheless dramatically improving what had been a very bad situation But just as that was about to be announced, Bill Clinton, on his way to Indonesia for an APEC meeting, uh, took it upon himself with all the right. Uh, motives to say that Indonesia really had to move on the question of granting autonomy and respect to human rights. Da, da, da. he made a very, very public statement to that effect, which President Suharto immediately took to be a challenge um, to uh, his own integrity and um, source of humiliation if Indonesia were seen to be buckling to that form of pressure, and immediately reversed uh, what I had understood to be the course that was intended. So you've got to be very careful about the way in which you do this, but, but. But you don't stop doing it. You don't stop pushing back against um, overreach, whether it's territorial overreach like China in the South China Sea, or it's human rights uh, misbehaviour, which has been, you know, pretty dramatic in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, in Hong Kong with the collapse of democracy there, and of course, uh, traditionally with, with Tibet, uh, quite apart from the issue with Taiwan, which has got a separate dynamic. So um, I do think we what what I constantly say in this context is, um, is to channel the the language of a famous uh, British labour figure in the 1930s, Scottish guy called Jimmy Maxton, who said, if you can't ride two horses at once, you shouldn't be in the bloody circus. So I think the horse of um, standing up to China... While it has to be also accompanied by riding the horse of getting along with China because our interests and everybody's interests depend on doing just that. So uh, it's always a very tricky course to navigate, but uh, you can't be too absolutist about it. But if you you follow the sort of guidelines that I mentioned, I think you you can be a good international citizen while at the same time uh, recognizing the, the reality of the world as we actually find it
0: yeah indeed and you've mentioned there obviously China we've talked about looking at human rights issues overseas in other nations but of course you say that we need to ensure that we're not being hypocritical that we have to look within ourselves to ensure that we are behaving as we expect others to do so and we've discussed refugees as an example about that here in Australia but also of course you talk about uh, Australia and how First Nations peoples, yep. some of the progress that has been made, but also there were moments of regression, of course, under the Howard years. I wonder if you could reflect on the domestic situation and whether you feel that it is progressing at the rate that it needs to, in terms of the the human rights challenges that we have here.
1: Well, Indigenous issues have always been the the touchstone, I think, of how serious we are as a country in addressing manifest disadvantage manifest human rights issues. Um, Kevin Rudd's stolen generations apology was actually something which did resonate around the world as an example of Australian decency uh, at its best. Uh, The trick, of course, is to turn that kind of sentiment into real achievement. And that's something that's uh, eluded successive governments, many of whom have tried very hard, some harder than others. So, all sorts of issues on which um, we need to think about where we're at. Uh, we have made progress on human rights issues. I mean, the, the respect for, for gender is gender differences has been dramatically uh, enhanced during my lifetime, um, the way in which, you know, the, the same sex marriage um website went through is dramatic demonstration that, um, you know, the public is sometimes ahead of where politicians are. And that's a point I I do want to make before we we finish this conversation, that the the politics of decency are really rather better than, um, than... that governments tend to assume. Uh, governments tend to assume that all these issues I've mentioned are, are sort of optional extras and many of which the, the public will be sort of reluctant to embrace because they won't see anything in it for them. That's, that's not the reality, uh, as demonstrated, as I point out in my little book, in successive Lowy Institute pollings polls over the last 15 or 20 years, which demonstrate that on, on every one of the issues that I've mentioned, uh, including even aid, on which the evidence for some people is ambiguous, uh, on every one of those issues, um, government the the people are sort of ahead of governments in terms of their willingness to embrace decency and decent policies, even when there's no obviously immediate self-interest return uh, to be to be generated. If we've got time, I could spell out the issue about aid, but um, but yeah. I, I do. Well, let, let me I was see. actually
0: just going to ask you that, so maybe I can just point, um, put in a little statistic here t- as a springing point um, that I, I double highlighted, uh, because you say that when we're looking at the aid figures and we look at previous budgets and, and what Australia has committed – Stephen Howes from the ANU has calculated that, on currently available data and government forecasts, Australia's commitment will drop to 0.19% of GNI in 2023-24, and an even more lamentable 0.18% in 2024 2025 And so, I mean, it puts us right at the bottom of the all-time low. Yeah, all and time, so all
1: time low for us, and right at the bottom of the OECD league tables for countries of remotely our, our wealth, and that's an absolute disgrace. That's been sort of justified by successive governments on the ground that Australians basically don't care very much about aid and certainly don't want to prioritize it ahead of you know domestic spending on health, education, welfare a perfectly understandable position, but not one that okay. is actually consonant with what we know about actual attitudes. When these things are tested, um, sometimes the, the results seem Seem to confirm that cynicism. Um, the Lowy poll about five years ago, for example, much quoted by the Morrison government, uh, indicated when people were asked about the particular amount of money that the government was then spending and whether that was too much, uh, I think, you know, 75%, 73% said, yes, it was too much. Um, you know, intolerably high level of expenditure. But the following year, and this is something I quote in the book because I think it's a very important little story. The following year, um, Lowy... Decided to approach the issue in a different way, and just by asking people, how much do you think we should be spending? Uh, as So, how much how much do you think we were spending as a proportion of the national budget on aid, and how much do you think we should be spending? So, rather than giving any actual figure, they just they just asked what people thought, and what people thought we were spending was. Um, was $14 in every $100 of the national budget, 14% of our national budget, not just of total GDP, but of the national budget. And, uh, and they said, of course, that's, that's too much. We, we you know, that, that's, that's over the top. Um, and th- but then when they're asked, uh, the next part of the question was, how much do you think we should be spending as a proportion of the national budget? Uh, the, the, the average figure was, was oh, 10%. 10% sounds about right. What we were actually, i.e. $10 in every $100 of the national budget, what we were actually spending at the time was 80 cents. So people people wow. thought we were spending, thought we were spending 17 and a half times as much as we actually were. And that was obviously impacting on their, their negative side of their response to that. They thought we were spending 17 and a half times as much as we actually were, but were willing to spend 12 times as much as we actually were. And I think this is this is consistent with the kind of generosity that Australians have shown in response to archaic tsunamis and multiple other you know demonstrations of, of goodwill for people in distress and suffering in other parts of the world far away where there's nothing in it for us to help them other than the sense of decency. And I, uh, I have a very strong view that governments that... Um, and I hope very much the new Labor government will uh, will pick up on this, that governments that are seen to be doing the right thing, the decent thing on these issues, don't suffer any pushback at all. They might, they might not win you elections, although, of course, the climate issue was a potential, uh, was a very big part of it. Labor's win in the most recent election. These issues don't usually win you elections, but they sure as hell don't lose you elections either. And I think uh, the returns in terms of just because this stuff is the right thing to do and because, but because it's also very much in our national interest to be seen to be doing it, um, far and away, um, you know, justify any uh, and overcome any any cynicism or scepticism or resistance that there might be from uh, our political leaders in taking these issues forward.
0: Yeah. Just finally, Hi, Gareth, Gareth, I had one final question based on something you mentioned in this book, which is that being a good international citizen requires a cooperative mindset. And obviously, bodies like the UN, multi- multilateral bodies and, and groups that bring in the entire world of nations are very important important despite their flaws and despite their you know shortcomings in some regard, uh, although we have heard Scott Morrison overnight talking about how he doesn't trust the UN, which is quite disappointing, but um, forgetting about that, I wondered about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, because that is something that it seems that Labor MPs have been uh, vocal about in the past. And I wondered if you thought that there was any chance under this Labor government as to whether they might make shifts at all on some of these big questions that previous governments, Liberal governments, have really dragged their heels on.
1: Well, we should certainly have been a participant in the discussion about the nuclear ban treaty rather than boycotting completely as the Americans wanted us to do, and that was an example of American influence, I think overriding the national interest. Because the the passage of that treaty and it's coming into force is a big normative step forward. It's a big, it's a big statement of of really important principle by now something like 120 countries who joined or signed or indicated they will this treaty, um, that these are the most indiscriminately inhumane weapons uh, ever invented, and they simply should be uh, disappear from the face of the earth. The, the, the trouble with the – and, of course, Labor has accepted uh, that as its policy um, and supported the existence of the treaty and made clear that, uh, if possible, we will actually sign and ratify it. But it's been qualified, that support, and I think properly so. This is a tricky issue um, on a couple of grounds. One is that the, the treaty as itself – has to be seen as a sort of aspirational rather than operational. It's got real technical weaknesses and some of its safeguards provisions, you know, it's lack of any provision at all for verification, lack of any provision at all for enforcement, um, which means that the nuclear armed states and those who think they benefit from their relationship with the nuclear armed states are simply not going to feel able to support it on, on technical grounds alone uh, because of the, uh, the weaknesses in the structure of the treaty. But we run. Rather than just de- decrying those weaknesses, we should be in there and part of a process of trying to rectify them over time. The other, the other really tricky problem for Australia about um, signing or ratifying the treaty, is that it um, it will really fundamentally um, put at risk our alliance relationship with the United States. Now, there's all sorts of arguments on both sides about. How that alliance should work and how much it's benefited in the past and how much it will in the future but it's very hard to uh, to walk away from it um, overnight and the reality is that some of those um, american big facilities in australia in particular one at pine gap uh, are part of its nuclear monitoring and targeting um, machinery. And for Australia to sign the treaty would mean that we could no longer make those facilities available to the United States. So there's there's a big, you know, sort of practical problem, a big trade-off problem involved here. And uh, it's... But, None of this should, should stop us being fierce advocates for the ultimate elimination of nuclear weapons, fierce advocates, of course, for non-proliferation, but that's easy, but also fierce advocates for nuclear risk reduction. And one of the things that I hope most immediately changes in Australian policy is that uh, we should be very strong advocates for no first use of nuclear weapons, which is something the Obama administration wanted to do, but felt constrained not to by opposition from Australia and other allies in Asia and Europe, and which the Biden administration similarly has walked away from because it's had no support from allies. This is not by itself. self-fulfilling, but it's a very important step if you're serious about nuclear risk reduction, along with de-alerting and reduced deployments and so on. So no first use of nuclear weapons is something I'd like to see up there in lights from the new Australian government and um, giving the Americans a very hard time for as long as they continue to resist going down that particular path.
0: Mm, Thank you for that contribution. I I hadn't um, caught up with that point. Gareth, it's just been so wonderful to chat with you about all of these issues. And there's a lot more in this book uh, that we haven't yet got to. So I hope that people can pick it up. It's called Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency, which is out through Monash University Publishing. And uh, yeah, many thank you. Many thanks, sorry, for um, joining us today. And I really hope that um, you have a, a great week and that we hear more from you on these issues, because they are worth talking about publicly and debating and getting everyone involved who's listening.
1: Well, my pleasure, Amy. Great to talk to you.
0: I've just been speaking with Gareth Evans, former Cabinet Minister in the Hawke Keating Labor governments, and many, many other things. And we've just been speaking about his latest book.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: And I've got to say, it is a true and absolute pleasure to welcome onto the program, Dave Goulson. Dave has studied biology for many, many years at Oxford University and is now Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. Throughout his career, he has been very much uh, interested in the study of insects, in particular in the last 20 years, studying bumblebees and in that work has published over 250 scientific articles on their biology. Interestingly, on a similar theme, Dave founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, and he's also the author of many books, including A Sting in the Tail, which was shortlisted for the 2013 Samuel Johnson Prize, and also he's the author of A Buzz in the Meadow and Bee Quest. Today, we are going to be talking about his latest book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, which has been released through Penguin Books. And uh, without further ado, I welcome onto the program, Dave Goulson. Hi there, Dave. Thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Hi, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Oh, it's uh, really great to chat with you. I was um, so struck by the title of your book and the cover. It's an issue that we here in Australia have certainly been thinking about. Um, not everyone, of course, but environmentally minded people have been thinking about for a little while. And if there's been a few insects here in Australia that I think have been at the front of our consciousness year on year thinking, Where are they? You know, I used to see them all the time, you know, when I was a kid. The most obvious one to many people is the Christmas beetle, which is this beautiful metallic beetle of different colours, and you just see them around, and I think it was kind of a joy of many people's childhoods, so to, as an adult, barely ever see them is quite a shock to many here. There are many other examples that I'd love to bring up a bit later, but I wonder What were some of the insects that caught your imagination as a child that you still think of today and are they still present and around?
2: Yeah, I guess I was first drawn to to butterflies and moths because they tend to be, some of them at least, are very colourful and beautiful and I think actually that for many people that's where, where if they're interested in insects, that's where it starts. Um, And when I was only... I think about six years old, one of my kind of earliest memories is of of searching for caterpillars. I found these little yellow and black stripy caterpillars um, on the edge of the school playground on some weeds. And I put them in my lunchbox and took them home and reared them up. And they eventually turned into these beautiful scarlet and black moths called cinnabar moths. It seemed like kind of magic to me. And I I was hooked. So I... I started collecting butterflies. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that now because, it, you know, one wouldn't encourage that kind of thing. But in the 1970s, that was a common hobby. And I just became kind of obsessed and never really grew out of it, I, I think. I mean, it, it was many years later that I switched to studying bumblebees. I, when I, I actually realized that butterflies are quite kind of airheaded, simple creatures. They're beautiful, but they don't do anything terrible. Now, it's not quite fair, but they're Their life cycles tend to be quite simple, whereas bees are really clever and do all sorts of um, really intricate and interesting uh, behaviors. So I kind of switched allegiance later on in life, but I, I love them all, really.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that because it was only maybe a month ago I was observing a butterfly in my backyard and watching it fly between different flowers. And I was trying to see if I could pick any kind of pattern of what was going on. And to be honest, I couldn't (laughs) at all. But the one thing I did notice was that there was a magpie nearby and the butterfly definitely was aware of that because I think as soon as it saw it, it just went straight away back around the house and very far from where I was.
2: Yeah, I mean, insects are the favourite food of an awful lot of larger creatures, so they spend their whole life kind of in peril. And uh, uh, that said, you know, as you you observed, they're pretty good at uh, uh, avoiding being eaten, but nonetheless, many of them do end up in the stomach of magpies and other birds.
0: One thing I wanted to address up front was bumblebees, because I know they're you know, obviously a central part of life in the United Kingdom, but obviously in Australia, bumblebees aren't part of life here, except in Tasmania. And here with honeybees and native bees, the beekeepers here are very, very careful to look out for bumblebees, to report them to the nearest pest management authorities, because we're worried about getting them to come here. So I guess when I was reading through your book about these, you know, lovely bumblebees, I had this thing in the back of my head going, no, but aren't they really bad?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess everything in its place, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've been to Tasmania and uh, studied the, the, the bumblebees there, which, which are from Europe, um, bufftail bumblebees, we call them. And there are issues, you know, they are an invasive species in, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, But obviously, it's very different in their native range, uh, where they've been for millions of years, and they're important pollinators of lots of our wildflowers and so on. So I I guess it's just one of the many things that we silly humans have messed up in the world, you know, redistributing creatures, uh, sometimes rather randomly or without much thought as to what the consequences might be. Um, And of course, in in non-native species, they can compete with native species, and, and there are I don't actually know off the top of my head how many species of bee there are in Australia, but there are twenty five thousand species of bee in the world, and I would be surprised if you haven't got at least a thousand in Australia. Um, and you know so so if bumblebees were to make it to the mainland, they would certainly compete with some of those. And there are also risks associated with diseases that can be carried by non-native species. So the same bumblebee that you have in Tasmania, the bufftail, was introduced to Chile in 1998, um, again, thousands of miles outside of its native range and it's spreading across South America. And unfortunately it's wiping out the native bumblebees, which occur in the Andes because it's carrying a disease, a European disease, which they have no resistance to. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we should, we should be a lot more careful. Basically we have really, and of course, Australia and New Zealand are the classic examples of many of the, the, the worst Impacts of of non native creatures, you know, so many examples cane toads, rabbits, foxes, and so on and so on, uh, which have have had devastating impacts on native wildlife. People don't tend to think of bees in the same context, but in the wrong place, they can be just as harmful as anything else.
0: Yeah, I wonder when you were thinking about and deciding what kind of insects you wanted to study in-depth as a scientist. What was it about bumblebees in particular that, that made you dedicate so much of your time to them? It, it was
2: just chance, really. Um, I'd got an academic position at Southampton University uh, so in the early 90s. And uh, my plan was to continue studying butterflies, which until that point had been my real focus. But I, I was struggling to get any grants, it's, to get funding for research and build a research program. Uh, and while I was floundering around, failing to get funded by anybody, one day I was in a in a meadow and idly watching some bees visiting flowers, bumblebees. And I, I noticed something odd, which was that if you watch, and you can see this with most species of bee, including honeybees in Australia, if you watch a bee in a patch of flowers, uh, she flies from flower to flower, but she'll often fly up to a flower and at the last second will will veer away as if there's something wrong with it, um, so she doesn't touch it, she doesn't land on it. And I saw bumblebees doing this, and I thought, well, you know, what, I wonder what they're doing, why they don't like certain flowers, what's wrong with them. And so I, I basically spent five years trying to unravel that. I had a managed to get a PhD student, Jane Stout, in between us. It turns out that basically what they do is they sniff the flower before they land, and they're sniffing it for the faint whiff of a smelly bee footprint on the, on the petal. So every time a bee actually lands on a flower, uh, she accidentally leaves a little smear of, of oily hydrocarbons from her cuticle, just like we leave a fingerprint on a glass, not deliberately, of course. Um, and that's a, a kind of clue that the flower will probably be empty because if her bees recently visited it, it will have taken the nectar and the pollen. Um, so they just save themselves time. And I thought that was really clever, essentially. And by the, after five years of studying that, I was kind of hooked and got really into trying to understand more about their, their behavior.
0: Well, as you say, they are truly the brains of the insect world. They have that uh, amazing concept of the superorganism and how they're all working together. And it's something that I know captures the imaginations of many people. But, you know, it's interesting when you take us through the evolution of insects in the book, which I was very interested in, given that we don't often talk about where they've come from. You say that they were essentially dominating the earth for quite a long time, that they were one of the few, at least in the air.
2: Yeah. uh, So, I mean, actually, since I wrote Silent Earth, I think the date of the origin of insects has been pushed back a little by scientists. So, So the best estimate now is that insects first appeared on Earth about 480 million years ago, which is just a mind-boggling number that doesn't really mean much to to most people. But it's long, long before dinosaurs or pretty much anything else came out of the sea onto land. And they basically have dominated, they they speciated to what we know of now, um, about 1.1 million species of insect, which is more than two-thirds of all species of animal and plant that we know of on the planet. And it's estimated that there might be another four or five million um, that we haven't even named yet, which is kind of pretty mind boggling, too. So, yeah, they I mean, they are the most successful group of organisms on on the planet. Um, They were the first creatures probably to sing, to chirp, to buzz, to make noises on our planet, apart from the wind and the waves. And they were the first creatures to fly. They took to the air about 380 million years ago. And they had the skies to themselves for, I think, about 160 million years, which is an awful long time. And there were these giant oxygen concentrations. And the early Earth were much higher than they are today, which let insects grow bigger than they do today. So there were dragonfly-like creatures with a wingspan of about 80 centimetres soaring through the skies, which must have been an amazing sight. And it wasn't until pterosaurs, the pterodactyls came along, that they had any any company in the air or anything to be worried about, I guess. And and right through to today, they are, there are still way more insect species and individuals than than anything else. And even I mean, just take ants, for example, as one relatively small group of insects, they outnumber humans by about a million to one. Um, So (laughs) there's a lot more insects on the planet than there are people.
0: Yeah, I loved the discussion of ants it was uh, it was really mind-boggling to think about as you point out there are a whole range of types of ants of course and there's even some really interesting was it the honey
2: the honeypot ant
0: that's right the honeypot yeah. ant which sounded yeah I've, i don't know if i've seen it in person i don't think i have because i probably would know
2: yeah i mean they I, they're in the very arid regions um, in the desert essentially So just to explain that honeypot ants look like fairly regular ants, except some of them become kind of living food stores. They sit inside little chambers inside underground where it's cool and they're fed nectar from flowers by the other ants and their bodies swell and swell and swell to the point where they're, they're too heavy for the insect to move at all. And in fact, their body swells to the size of a kind of grape and becomes more or less transparent, and so it looks golden from the colour of the nectar, like like honey, essentially. And clusters of these incredibly distended ants just sit together, clinging to the roof of their little chambers underground. And they, they, they never move. Their job is simply to store the food, and if another ant is hungry and wants it, they regurgitate some for them. Um, but that's that. those stores of nectar in those ants are really valuable, so other ant nests will go on raids to steal the honeypot uh, stores of their neighbours. And, of course, the, the Aboriginal people of Australia um, cottoned on very quickly to the, this tasty snack to be found underground and would dig them up and eat them. Um, even David Attenborough I've seen on television eating honeypot ants. So, uh, oh, really? Tasty snack, uh-huh. apparently.
0: Yeah, well, it is interesting uh, that that section in your book early on when you were talking about insects as food, Uh, Because I have seen that in more and more news pieces in the last year, is people even in Australia starting up companies to try and tempt consumers to eat insects and consider them as a source of protein and, and nutrients. But you point out it's it's obviously been around for a very very long time throughout other cultures.
2: Yeah, I mean it's actually it's it's an odd thing really that in kind of Western civilization we've we've somehow decided that eating insects is taboo because actually the majority of the of the people of the world think it's completely normal in south america much of asia uh, it's very common and and lots of africa it's very common to eat insects but for some reason in europe and australia and north america we've we've, we 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 think it's most people at least think they're disgusting which doesn't make any sense because we'll happily eat a prawn which is just a sort of, I mean, which is a crustacean, not an insect, but they're rather similar related groups of creatures with lots of legs and an external shell and so on. So we're very illogical. It's just, I guess, a part of our our culture. But it it does make sense to eat insects. They're very nutritious, basically. And rearing them for food um, is a much more efficient process than rearing uh, cows or sheep uh, or chickens um they convert plant material into stuff that we can digest that's and um, that's good for us um much more efficiently and with less water and less space and so on so so uh, maybe you know it's it's part of the solution to the many problems we face in the future
0: yeah and well you also say and as we kind of become aware of in the the book is that there are many animals and uh, fish who are reliant on insects for their food so you know it's not just humans who who needs insects in the world.
2: Absolutely. I I mean, actually, they're, they're a kind of critical part of the, the food web f- for most organisms. Uh, so even if... The, so there are many, many insects... Uh, sorry, very, very many birds, bats, lizards, freshwater fish, amphibians all eat insects. But then there are many more that eat the things that eat the insects. So they're still dependent on them, just not quite so directly. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, insect declines um, have consequences, and one of the more obvious ones is if uh, for the creatures that depend on them for food.
0: And obviously, one of the kind of most important. Points that you're you're making in this book is that insects, of course, have value in and of themselves, and why wouldn't we want to keep them alive and protect a living creature? But there's also other values or other functions of insects, and as we've mentioned, they can be a food source, um, but they're also clearly crucial in the role of pollinating plants. And, you know, as you point out, there is such thing as wind pollination. So if we lost all pollinators, we wouldn't be without food totally, but it would really limit our options.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the wind pollinated crops include things like wheat and barley, rice, maize. So we'd, we'd have bread, we'd have porridge, we'd have rice, um, but our diets would be Severely boring and very much lacking in vitamins and minerals because most of the fruits and veg that make our diet healthy are insect pollinated rather than wind pollinated, and they're the ones that disappear or, or yields would be much reduced. And there's a huge number you know, strawberries, raspberries, apples, blueberries, tomatoes, chili peppers, squashes, even things like coffee and chocolate depend on insect pollinators. So you know, life would be pretty, imagine a, a world without coffee and chocolate alone sounds pretty terrible to me, let alone <laughs> all those lovely fruits. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we, there's no doubt at all that uh, we humans, whether we love or loathe insects, we need them. I, I mean, I, actually, I should add while I've got the chance uh, pollination is one of the things they do that's well recognized, but we shouldn't forget there's actually a whole bunch of other things they do. For example, recycling waste material like cowpats and dead bodies um, and helping to keep the soil healthy and aerated and distributing seeds and helping to control pests. Admittedly, the pests themselves are often different types of insects, so not all insects are helpful to us. But, you know, they're involved in more or less everything. And so if they were to somehow all disappear, it would be an absolute catastrophe for all of life on Earth.
0: Yeah, we've just had autumn and it reminded me of a chat I had with um, an entomologist who was saying, you know, stop raking your leaves all the time in the garden, just leave them there because there are a lot of insects who really need them.
2: Yeah, well, it's one of their key roles is, is breaking down those leaves and incorporating them into the soil, which releases the nutrients in those leaves for then more plants to grow the next year. So tidying those leaves away and burning them, which some people do. Or wasting petrol using a leaf blower to blast them around, which I've never understood, <laughs> is, is counterproductive. Really, leave, leave the leaves. Um, and as, as a general point, actually, b- being less tidy w- would be of great benefit to to nature. You know, particularly in in gardens and urban areas, which can support a lot of wildlife, but not if they're super tidy with neat mown lawns. Uh, or plastic grass, worst case scenario. There's a lot of that going on in the UK these days. Um, but if you if you grow lots of you know a few native wildflowers, herbs, and so on, it's really easy to encourage a huge number of insects uh, to to thrive in your back backyard.
0: Yes, I did notice that um, the hoverflies and the bees were really into our so-called weeds. That were popping up through the grass you know the dandelions and that kind of thing they were just obsessed and so I always got upset when anyone mowed the lawn.
2: Yeah I mean it's, it's the whole thing of weeds is an interesting one I mean it, in the UK dandelions are a native wildflower but they're still regarded as weeds by the very large majority of people and I, I spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to be more tolerant of these weeds so long as they're native plants then you know, ideally let them be because they, the, the, many of them are, are really important nectar resources or pollen resources for for a whole host of insects. And dandelions in particular, actually, they flower in early spring when there aren't too many other flowers about. And for us, that's the time of year when, when bumblebee queens are coming out of hibernation and they're starving hungry. And those dandelions are a really key resource. So um it's a bit daft, but I've, I often say to people, you know, you can get rid of all the weeds in your garden, just like just at the click of your fingers by just calling them wildflowers.
0: <laughs> it's a good idea. We'll get to um, pesticides and, and a whole range of chemicals a bit later on in the, the program. But I wanted to pick up on one of the examples you brought up just a bit earlier, which was well, you were broadly referencing dung beetles because there's a, an excellent example you give in the book that is based in Australia, and it was mind-blowing to me to think that we could be surrounded by cow poo right now if we didn't have <laughs> a whole range of dung beetles.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really amazing story. Um, so to, to, to cut it reasonably short, there are lots of dung beetles native to Australia, but they evolved to deal with marsupial dung which is really dry, uh, and they were completely incapable of dealing with with the sloppy dung of of cows when cows were introduced by us Europeans. And so, and these poor Australian dung beetles would literally drown if they tried to to deal with with cowpats. Um, so the cowpats were just accumulating and ended up covering vast areas of pasture. So the grass couldn't grow through because it was just covered in a in a in a layer of of cow dung which sparked scientists to start looking looking for dung beetles to import to australia that could deal with with the the cow poo and it's a rare example of where importing non-native species to australia actually really was did a positive thing um, because they they found some suitable dung beetles from uh south africa where the climate is is approximately similar so they were able to to thrive in Australian conditions, but they could deal with the, the sloppy poo of cows. And in no time at all, all the dung was, was neatly buried underground. All those lovely nutrients were being released. The grass was growing and the farmers were happy. So it just goes to show that, you know, we'd always taken those dung beetles for granted in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, nobody really thought that they were doing anything important. But actually, when you try surviving without them and farming without them, you find it doesn't work. Um, So it's a really nice illustration of, of our dependence on the most unlikely of creatures.
0: Mm. And to give people an idea of the scale, I loved um, your you know, pointing out of the statistics that with each cow producing about a dozen pats per day by the 1950s, the area of Australia covered by cow pats was estimated to be increasing by 2,000 square kilometres per year. And, you know, although Australia is a large continent, it does sound like it was a bit of an issue.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of kaypoo, isn't it?
0: That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. You do quote E.O. Wilson, the um, American biologist, quite a lot in this book, and no doubt it makes a lot of sense. He has some really great things to say about uh, insects and the environment. And, you know, one which is really striking is that, uh, quote, if all mankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. If insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. I think that many people would never really think of those consequences, would we? Like that insects were that critical to our world.
2: Absolutely. I think we we largely ignore them. Most people are almost entirely ignorant of the world of insects. I think most adults are frightened of insects. We hate to see them in our houses. If anything buzzes near us, most people flap around trying to kill it because they're they're frightened. They think it's going to sting them. So most people just don't really like insects. I think is the the horrible truth. I find it terribly depressing, and and I don't understand (laughs) it. But anyway,
0: it's a tough PR problem for you, isn't it?
2: It it is. They're not an easy sell, apart from some, you know, butterflies, easy enough. But most insects are are not so glamorous. And so I I think you know, it's really important to try and get across that. that they do do an incredible number of vital things, you know we even if you live in the middle of a city you you never go out into the countryside. you still get your food from a from a, a shop, and that came from a farm where insects were busy keeping that ecosystem functioning um so wherever you live, whatever you do, you still depend upon insects, whether you like it or or appreciate it or not and i I, I wish more people understood that.
0: Yeah, there was an Australian interviewer asking me, <laughs> you know, isn't that a good thing if insects are disappearing?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was a strange experience. To be fair, I, I, it was difficult because I couldn't see his face. It was just on a telephone interview.
0: We do have a weird sense of humour.
2: I think he was probably smiling and mm-hmm. it was just a kind of provocative uh, way to start the interview. But it was uh, as I explained in the book. At the time, I was standing in a toilet, so it was uh, just—it was the only quiet place I could find. So it was—it was a slightly odd interview altogether, really.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of cockroaches around recently, probably trying to escape the rain or something. They just seem to be around, but that—they're probably the only one that I'm a little irked by—is is cockroaches.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, of course, there are insects that that, that spread disease. Are almost universally loathed and i'm, I'm afraid cockroaches and perhaps house flies mosquitoes uh might be included in that list actually I mean cockroaches are amazing little creatures if you get to know them. I have for many years kept um Madagascan hissing cockroaches as pets, which are very big but rather slow moving insects, obviously from Madagascar. they live in the rainforest there and they 're really sweet um and once you get to like those, it's actually, actually you start to realize that cockroaches aren't so bad. But
0: do they hiss at each other? Is that where the name comes from?
2: They don't hiss at each other usually, but if if they're if they're threatened, if they think something's trying to eat them, they they hiss. They're completely harmless. They have yeah. no um, no real defense, but they all they're doing is squeezing air out of their little breathing holes, their spiracles along their side, and it just makes this odd sort of hiss, hiss kind of noise. I don't know if you could pick that up, but uh, yeah. And presumably it deters a few timid potential predators. Anyway, they're right. Even cockroaches (laughs) have their charm when you get to know them.
0: I'm sure they do. I haven't really got to know them. So that's probably why I don't really like them as much. Um, But I have got to know a few others. Hoverflies are my kind of obsession at the moment. I saw one of them in summer and it was just I looked up above my head which I rarely ever do. I think I was trying to look up a tree and there was a hoverfly right above my head just hovering there for what felt like at least a minute just sitting there like hovering.
2: They are master flyers. I mean they, they yeah. I mean actually flies as a as a as a group more broadly um are arguably the the, the most Accomplished flyers on the planet. They can they they can hover a stationary. They can fly backwards. They can even fly upside down if they choose to. Well, they don't do it terribly often, but they can. Um, they really are, you know, um, extremely skilled uh, at flying.
0: Well, I want to move into some, obviously the key kind of crux of the book, which is this idea that there is a kind of significant amount of insect decline. There are patterns that seem to have been emerging in the science that show insect decline in different populations and you know you point out some of the difficulties in assessing this because as you've already mentioned there are a huge number of insects that haven't even been named you know identified they're not part of the taxonomy of insects yet which is obviously a shame because if we don't know that they exist then how do we know if we've lost them so that's clearly you know one problem and then the other is you point out that even the ones we do know that are named a lot of them are just kind of sitting in a museum pin stuck through them and we don't really have much more knowledge of them.
2: It's absolutely true there are there are so many species of insect I I mentioned earlier more than a million known species and millions that are estimated to exist that are unknown and there just aren't the the insect enthusiasts in the world to to keep tabs on them all or even a, actually more than a tiny fraction of them the long term insect population data we have is incredibly patchy and is really focused mainly in in Europe and North America uh, sorry guys but uh, not <laughs> a lot going on in Australia yet and it tends to be very focused on butterflies and and a few other groups of big relatively easy to identify um insects uh, so for actually e- even in great britain which is probably the the most studied corner of the world in, in with regard to insects i would guess we still ha- we have no data at all on on probably 95 percent of our insect species and in most of the world i mean for entire continents like africa and south america we have no data at all for any insects so it's really difficult to, to to make any sweeping generalizations about what's going on but the data we do have the long- term studies that that have been done almost all show really quite pronounced declines um, so it's the, the, the evidence we have is very worrying um one of the the more famous studies in fact the one that triggered that Australian interview that we were talking about five minutes ago it was, it was a study came from Germany, uh, and that found a 76% decline in insect biomass, the weight of in- flying insects, between 1989 and 2016. So there's 27 years. So seemingly three quarters of the insects in Germany went in a quarter of a century, which is pretty terrifying. If if that is a general phenomenon, um, and the the best evidence we have suggests that it is, unfortunately.
0: Well, you do take us through a lot of those longer term studies and obviously you point out some of their deficits, which sometimes are avoidable and other times not avoidable. You know, things that are a challenge for any scientists to really deal with. And you also, you know, show that there are some types of um, studies where I believe you were looking at the distribution of insects um, and trying to figure out whether that had changed and see if you could infer meaning from that.
2: Yeah. So for for many insects in Europe, we, we don't have any kind of population data. No one's been counting them in a rigorous way. But we, we do have lots of records, so you can plot maps and you can look how the distribution has changed between, uh, let's say, the first half of the 20th century and and more, more recently. And that tends to reveal that, that the ranges have contracted. Um, so, for example, in the UK, our wild bee species, on, on average, have lost about 30% of their geographic range since 1990. So, the last 30 years um and so those if if the range is contracting if they're disappearing from places they used to occur they're not it's pretty obvious that they've declined but we don't know exactly how much they've declined by but it all points in the same direction rather rather sadly Mm. i I guess one of the really poignant things here is uh, which you touched on a second ago which is that we are almost certainly losing creatures to extinction that, we, that we've that we never discovered and we will never know they existed. And I, I find that, I don't know why really, but it seems really sad that there are organisms. And it's currently estimated that extinction rates are running at, at very, very crude, crudely. About one species per hour somewhere on the planet is being lost. And because insects make up the majority of species, the chances are the species that goes extinct while we're having this conversation will be an insect somewhere, but probably an insect that we haven't yet named. So we'll never really know. Um, And who knows what amazing creatures are disappearing right now. Um, And we'll, you know, none of us will ever know what they were.
0: I feel like I'm very aware of that in the sense that we're always reminded here in Australia that we're mega diverse. And so, you know, we're just so lucky to have access to a whole range of species that other people don't have around the world. So you can only feel that more acutely, I think, when we have such terrible bushfires, for example, and you kind of imagine all of those um, species that we might be losing potentially through, you know, these major kind of catastrophic events caused by climate change.
2: Yeah, and and those catastrophic events are, uh, are coming on the back of decades of other problems that we've created by chopping down forests and using pesticides and uh, all the other things we do. So insect populations, wildlife populations more generally, were already much reduced. And now they're suddenly, on top of everything else, having to deal with fires, floods, droughts, uh, heat waves, and so on, which unfortunately may be the final straw for some of them.
0: And one thing that was particularly, you know, interesting to me is the the scientific debate that's going on in the community of entomologists and other biologists, because, you know, there is the the one side, which I think is, you know, what you might represent, which is saying that, well, yes, some of these studies might have shortcomings, but the patterns are kind of undeniable. It's showing a strong trend in every single one of the studies, bar a few, and there are reasons why they're not you know that way it might have been that um you know the land had been rehabilitated and so insects started to flourish again mm. then there's this other side which kind of reminds me of the climate change debate where it's saying oh don't be too alarmist and you know calm down a bit um we need to just do more science and count them better and get more understanding and then we can figure it out but to me i guess i'm wondering isn't that going to be too late and aren't the consequences going to be worse if we just wait around for more science.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, I, we haven't got time to wait. And I think the evidence is overwhelming. Although it's far from perfect, it will never be perfect. And if you want to follow that line of reasoning, we must wait until we know everything before we do anything. Well, we'll be waiting forever. Um, and then it really will be too late. I do find it frustrating. And uh, and I've, of course, part of the issue is there are vested interests in continuing the status quo. There's a huge industry associated with industrialised farming and all the pesticides associated with that, which are a powerful lobby, uh, and they they try to influence science. They publish their own science, which suggests that things are, you know, are, are just fine. There are some real obvious parallels with what the tobacco industry did in the 20th century, trying to basically claim doubt, to claim uncertainty, cause confusion, blow smoke clouds um you know there's a there's a book merchants of doubt which describes all this in great detail but basically making it okay for politicians to delay action because it seems as if there's no clear scientific consensus but actually there is a clear scientific consensus there was as to smoking causing harm to humans and there is today that insects and biodiversity generally is collapsing um and we really really do need to to do something about it urgently
0: Yeah. I wanted to quote one of the very many statistics that you have in the book, and I hope people read the book so they can get a full grasp of all the the amazing science that you do distill for us. But this is the kind of top level stats that you were giving us. You were saying that we can't be sure... But if one looks at the various studies from Europe over various time periods and focused on different insect groups, it seems likely that we have lost at least 50% or more of our insects since 1970. It could easily be as high as 90% and declines over the last 100 years are very likely to be much greater. So, you know, that's pretty big this is a, a massive problem. It's not some kind of small part of the biodiversity crisis. This is a, a huge chunk.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, one of the, the sort of interesting things, but scary things is that, that the, the data we do have doesn't go back very far, really. I mean, the, the, the oldest insect monitoring data set we have is for butterflies in the UK. and it not That starts in 1976. Well, you know, Silent Spring was written by Rachel Carson in 1962, almost 60 years ago to the day. We know that insect declines almost certainly started decades before 1976. So the declines we are measured are probably just the tail end of, of much larger declines. We'll never know for sure unless someone invents a time machine. But uh, um, it seems extremely likely that we've lost a very large proportion of, of, of our insects already. Um, and and you know clearly that can't carry on.
0: And land clearing you've referenced there is a clear issue, one of the major issues, and it is for so many of the problems we have here in Australia. Um, some of our states being the most land clearing places on the developed planet. Um, so it's a, a certainly a something very close to home here. And you talk about the fact that only 6.2 million square kilometers remain of the 16 million. Uh, square kilometers of forest that once clothed the earth, so this is um as we've already pointed out a major a major problem for insects as well as for other uh, birds, mammals, and other creatures. but there are obviously a whole range of other causes of insect decline, and as you point out, there isn't one that's the main Factor, and obviously they all compound as well, depending on what's most relevant for each um, insect species. But I wonder, you know, could you take us through which you think are some of the most important causes that you've been observing and, and looking at yourself?
2: So, I, th- I think still the biggest one, as you say, is habitat loss, destruction of of really biodiverse habitats like tropical forests. And their replacement with crops, monocultures of of soybean or whatever, and I I must say, seeing as I seeing as I'm talking to an Australian organisation, it's really sad to me that Australia, you know, it's easier to forgive a developing country for destroying rainforests because they're poor, they they need the resources perhaps, um, but Australia doesn't need to chop down its tropical forests. You and you are incredibly lucky to have inherited. A continent with amazing biodiversity, and you should look after it. And sorry, not you personally. No, no,
0: I know. I spend my life talking about it on this show and, and rallying against it.
2: It's so frustrating to see, you know, a country that doesn't have to do it, um, still continuing down this route. It's absolute madness. Anyway, so habitat loss is probably number one, um, but it kind of it's impossible to separate that from. The sort of industrialization of agriculture, which so land used for food production has become progressively more hostile to wildlife over time, particularly since the 1940s when pesticides became cheaply available to farmers to use. And today we have a a bewildering array of pesticides going onto the land in huge quantities, um, fields being sprayed 10, 15, 20 times a year with poison, basically. Um, so farming a 100 years ago uh, actually supported quite a bit of wildlife, whereas farming today supports extremely little. Those are sort of two intertwined kind of factors. But then there's a whole bunch of other problems. Invasive species are having big impacts in some regions. Uh, climate change is really starting to kick in. It probably hasn't devastated too many insects yet, but um, if we reach plus two degrees. That will be catastrophic for, for many insects. Light pollution is another one which is much less well-appreciated, but that really has, causes issues for nocturnal insects and messes up the, the life cycles of insects because they, they, it basically can fool them into thinking it's spring when actually it's winter because they use day length as their judge of when it's time to emerge from hibernation. And so artificial lights can cause real problems. And so on and so on. Um, there are others too that I talk about in the book that are having, playing a role. And it's really this combination of factors. You know, insects are pretty adaptable on the whole. Um, they can cope with with quite a lot and have managed to survive for nearly half a billion years. But if you bombard them in a very short space of time from all sides with all of these different problems, then, you know, it's just, it's just not possible for them to adapt quickly enough.
0: Yeah, I really did appreciate your your section on light called Bauble Earth, where you said it's estimated that the amount of light we are casting at night increases every year by between two and six percent. That has been obvious to me here in Australia, not only in urban areas, but also outside in regional areas as well. And you know, we have that idea. Well, of course, moths are attracted to the light we have on in our houses, you know, and I can see them bashing up against the, the windows, wanting to come in. And you talk about the theories about why insects are attracted to our artificial light, and perhaps that's the role of the moon, which was really interesting to me as well. So Yeah, there's so many things I think we're not considering. There's the obvious suspects like pesticides, um, but then, you know, light, which I think many people think is such a benign thing. Oh, I'll just leave the porch light on or have my lights on at night. You know, it's something that is so easy to change.
2: You even see office blocks lit up all night, which I've never understood what earthly purpose that serves. Yeah. I think it's such a waste of energy. Waste of money aside from the impact it has on, on wildlife. And yeah, I mean, I can't help but suspect there are probably other factors driving insect declines that we haven't even discovered yet. You know, the world has changed so fast in the last 100 years, last 50 years. It may well be that there are other factors, perhaps, or the chemicals that we manufacture. Um, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll never discover them. But I, I, I think there are very likely to be um, stories that we can't yet tell because we don't know what's happening.
0: I wanted to pick up on one of the areas you've done a lot of research and writing about and you do focus a lot of the attention in the book on it and that was looking at pesticides and chemicals overall, artificial chemicals. In particular, Is I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but is it neonicotinoids?
2: Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, it's a new, It's a relatively new word so you can pronounce it however you like, I think.
0: That's good. <laughs> I was really interested in how there was this... Research into it, the EU started to ban it initially on those flowering crops and then realised, no, that's not enough. We need to ban it across pretty much all crops with some few exceptions and special considerations. But when I googled here in Australia, do we use this group of chemicals? It basically said yes, and it didn't appear that we had any real regulation around them.
2: You you don't. Um, the pesticide regulation in Australia is, is less strict than it is in Europe. Um, and I should say, actually, Europe is the only uh, major region of the earth that has taken steps to ban these neonicotinoids. I think the evidence is pretty clear. I mean, they're basically neurotoxins that uh, kill insects in really, really tiny doses. And they're quite persistent in the environment. They get into nectar and pollen of wildflowers. They contaminate the soil, streams, rivers. Um, it's, it's, it's not completely dissimilar to the DDT story. And yet, most of the world still allows them to be used uh, freely by farmers, um, which is pretty terrifying.
0: And it's not even just deaths, as you point out. The sublethal effects are very significant, and you point out those effects on bees.
2: Yeah. So the regulatory system, such as it is for testing pesticides around the world, usually focuses really on on lethal effects. So you you get a bee, you give it a dose of pesticide, and then after 48 hours, you assess whether it's alive or dead. And if it's alive, it's okay, all is good. But actually, it may not be able to fly, it may not be able to navigate, its Im- immune system might be damaged. There can be all sorts of potentially lethal in the long-term effects, or, or at least extremely damaging. For example, if a, if a honeybee or a bumblebee can no longer navigate because it's confused, it's dazed, it's it's been exposed to a neurotoxin, then it's useless to its hive because it can't go and collect food. So there are all sorts of much more subtle effects that we're only just beginning to realise um, are caused by pesticides of one type or another.
0: And you point out that these newer chemicals and pesticides, insecticides can be up to a thousand times more toxic than things like those old school chemicals like DDT.
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, seven thousand times more. And um, the the commonly used neonicotinoids are to to a an insect seven thousand times more poisonous than DDT was. Wow. Um, so it it takes four billionths of a gram um, of one of these chemicals to kill a honeybee, uh, mm. which you can't can't really imagine. But it's a, it means that one teaspoon is enough to kill one and a quarter billion honeybees. Um, So we're we're dealing with really potent stuff and we apply tons of them, literally tons of them to the landscape. And then we wonder why our insects are in decline.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to cover off on what the um, solutions are so we don't make people depressed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The good news is actually that a lot of this is fairly easily solved. Um, uh, You know, lots of environmental issues do feel rather doom and gloom and people feel powerless, but... Insects they live all around us they live in gardens and parks and and most of them haven't gone extinct and their populations can recover really quickly you know they breed much faster than pandas or koalas given half a chance uh, so they could spring back we just need to to you know ease the pressures on them and if you've got a got a garden you can play a, a really important role by making that more insect friendly don't use pesticides grow native plants so far as possible, don't be too tidy. It's amazing. I mean, you can have literally thousands of species of insect living in a single small urban garden. So we can all play a part. And uh, my kind of slightly crazy dream is, is of our urban areas becoming kind of giant nature reserves for insects, where people can grow up seeing all these lovely creatures in their garden and not turn into people who are frightened of insects by the time they're adults, because they're familiar to them. Mm. I, it, it's maybe a bit optimistic of me to to dream of this, but but it is kind of already happening. I mean, certainly in Europe, the, there's a huge growth of interest in wildlife gardening, sometimes called rewilding of gardens, which I think is really cool. And if we could also get councils on board, so that the road verges, the roundabouts, the parks, the cemeteries, and so on, were all being managed in a kind of benign, wildlife-friendly way, then that would really help of course farming and habitat loss isn't tackled directly by that um but you can also try and steer farming in a more insect friendly direction by buying organic food buying local sustainably produced foods eating seasonal food eating less meat um this is you know not directly linked to insects but it all reduces our impact on the planet and leaves more space for for other life to flourish so we we can all play our part and If enough people do, it really would make a difference.
0: Yeah. Well, I just wanted to talk about the people power point that you make because it is quite powerful, the fact that things have changed at the local council level in many countries because of individuals pushing their councils. Things have changed in Canada, in France, in other countries and you've also said you know there's a power around petitions and lobbying your parliamentarians do you feel heartened by that as well i know you say you've become a bit a little bit cynical about the responses of some politicians
2: yeah i mean on the one hand it's it, it's nice to see all these sort of campaigning websites and petitions being launched and and it it, it does help rally people together and and draw politicians uh, attention to to these issues and hopefully make them realize how many people care about them which must all help but the flip side i guess is there's a danger that we think that you know if we get ten thousand signatures on a petition that that's actually achieved something and unless but of course unless that petition is translated into some real action it doesn't achieve anything at all and there are so many petition i i Probably get asked to sign at least one petition every day, mm. and I think some people mistakenly think that all we need to do is sign enough petitions and and we'll save the planet and actually we'll achieve absolutely nothing if that's all we do so I, yeah anyway, more broadly, I mean it is heartening to see there is a wave of interest in looking after the planet better than we have, and particularly amongst young people um and so I do think there is some reason to be very cautiously optimistic that it's not quite too late yet. Yeah. And there is hope that we humans can learn to tread a little more gently on our planet. Fingers crossed, hey.
0: Eh? Yeah. As you point out, you're writing these books for a reason, and that's to increase public awareness. So I hope people can check out your book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. It is by yourself, Dave Goulson, and out through Penguin Books here in Australia. Thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: It's been great fun. I'll happily come back when I Get around to writing another book.
0: Yeah, please.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: But I'm really pleased to be joined by an uncommon sense regular, Dr Emma Shortus. She is a historian and um, she is an expert in US politics. She's based at the research, sorry, at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT and has a role there as research fellow. And Emma also notably is the author of Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Still highly relevant. I wish more policymakers would um, read it so they hopefully would change their minds about uh, Australia's foreign policy direction. But I digress. We're going to be talking today about US politics domestically, but also its engagement in the world. Um, There's a lot of intersections. And uh, yeah, as Emma just tweeted uh, a little while ago, it is a bit of a muddle at the moment. There's a lot happening and um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of coherence. So lucky Emma she has the great task of trying to make sense of it for us so thank you so much Emma for doing such a great public service and joining us today thanks so much Amy thanks for having me back it's funny it did you know I always really enjoy the enjoy of course for these um, segments
3: of course you know there's always so much happening in the United States but I feel you know generally when I'm talking about it there's a particular kind of hook that we can latch onto around the kind of crisis of democracy in the United States. Like last time I spoke to you, for example, it was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But even that, you know, that particular crisis, which is sort of emblematic, I suppose, of the crisis in democracy in the United States is being overshadowed by other crises, which are also intersecting. You know, we've spoken, of course, about school shootings. And I was just reading today about how in Texas, the, the prayer candles that are at the memorial um, in Uvalde are melting because Texas is experiencing one of its worst ever heat waves. So the way that these crises just kind of keep compounding on each other is just such an incredible mess. And it is really a kind of, I suppose, staggering to to watch it from afar, to watch what seems like a slow collapse from afar and to watch really powerful Americans mm-hmm. also standing by and, and watching and either feeling kind of, um, unable to, to do anything or, in fact, being unwilling to act and actively um, fighting against the change that might help America to kind of claw its way out of these crises. Mm.
0: Well, you mentioned there, Uvalde, and I did note that there was a 77-page report from the Texas government released on Sunday that had really done a bit of a review into what happened with the the... Uh, Rob Elementary School shooting, mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, um, where I think it was 19 children and two teachers were murdered by a, a gunman, quite um, young gunman. Uh, 17 others were wounded. And that was on 24th of May. Um, it, I was really shocked to read that almost 400 law enforcement officers actually went to the school after it started. Um, but they couldn't gather together a sense of coordination at the scene to be able to intervene effectively. Uh, I think it was 376 police officers to be exact. Mm. I mean it, it does kind of seem emblematic of the United States and its approach to gun control, the fact that it, you know it had that larger response and it still couldn't find a way to stop it from happening, to intervene in something that had just begun.
3: Look, that's right. It is, uh, you know, in many ways, it's an astonishing report, but but also it's entirely um, expected, I suppose. And it is, again, kind of representative of these intersecting crises that I was talking about, the, the most obvious one being gun control, but the, the, the other one in the United States being policing because, you know, exactly as you said, Amy, nearly 400 police officers showed up to this scene of this mass shooting. And as the report found, it was 73 minutes went by before they did anything, um, out of, you know, these 370-plus officers, the report found that no-one assumed command of the situation. So it is it is an absolutely damning report, and it, it says, and I've got a quote here, that police officers, and this is local police, state police and federal police, failed to adhere to their active shooter training and failed to prioritise saving innocent lives over their own safety so this is police failing to do their most basic job, and I think when you combine that with incidents of police violence, of police murder of particularly African American African Americans in the United States, you can see that policing all over the United States is in crisis, and and children are dying as a result. You know the report didn't didn't find that any children might necessarily have been saved by police intervening earlier except to say that those children who waited 73 minutes for an intervention may have been able, for example, to get medical care sooner. So it's just really um, yeah. it's shocking to read and particularly shocking to read, you know, the parents and the relatives of these children reacting to this report.
0: Mm. There's another part of that story of what happened that is also particularly galling because we heard about how there were several phone calls from children inside their classrooms to nine one one to say, you know, there's a shooter here. Please help me. And there were mm-hmm. like multiple times they kept calling, like, are you coming? Um, so you know, there are stories of of those kids and even one of the parents. I remember seeing a video of him speaking to, I think it was, um, oh, this guy Cooper, CNN, Cooper Anderson. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, he conducted this beautiful interview with one of the fathers of the children and his young girl had actually used her mobile phone um, to to make that call and because she was actually trying to save her uh, classroom classmates, um, it was reported that she was targeted, you know, basically first because she'd actually, you know, mm-hmm. been really brave in trying to to raise the alarm. But even those calls seemed to be completely ignored because, as the report says, uh, the committee received no evidence that any officer who did learn about phone calls coming from inside rooms 111 and 112 acted on it. So it's saying that um, those officers who heard of the calls... Um, none of those acted on it and shifted to, as you said, an active shooter-style response. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine that you would know that there are these calls for help from kids in the classrooms and not just one but several across the time period and yet no-one changed their response.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of reflective generally of the attitude of law enforcement Across the United States, and the, and the reason that protests against police violence in particular have been so vehement because, as lots of really important research shows, police are trained, you know, again, not to prote- protect innocent lives, but to protect their own lives and to get home at any cost. And on the surface, you can see, you know, that there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. But the general orientation of police, and this I think is what this particular instance shows, is not towards community protection. And, and that is a kind of crucial, fundamental, catastrophic flaw in so much of American policing and why people are calling for kind of root and branch yeah. reform or for defunding the police completely because these police um, departments get astonishing amounts of money, you know, billions and billions of dollars. They have military-grade body armour and yet fail to protect children. You know, they leave it up to children to protect themselves and protect each other. And there was a story kind of not long after all of this about a, a potential mass shooting at a 4th of July parade and stories coming out of this of young children telling their parents what to do in an active shooter situation because they've been trained from the very beginning of their schooling lives in how to respond and their parents have. Like to leave that to children is just astounding and just an abject moral failure.
0: Yeah. And I know that a lot of the children in the classroom and uh, a lot of the teachers as well were Latina in background and that's mm. another thing is obviously race in America and although it seems that this shooting doesn't appear to be specifically racially motivated um you know it's still an issue that the people you know black and brown Americans are suffering more um than those who are mm. white especially in these gun um you know mass shootings and and also other minorities like Asian Americans and um Jewish
3: Americans yeah, look, that's right. And again, you know, that's that's part of intersecting crises because you're right, Amy, in terms of gun violence, non-white Americans disproportionately suffer from gun violence and also police violence, but also in terms of, of health outcomes, in terms of environmental outcomes and educational outcomes, the gap is still enormous. And, and so you see this kind of a, a continual erosion of faith as well in democratic institutions, in, in institutions like the police because they, they aren't doing their job. They're not protecting vulnerable Americans and they're not protecting minority Americans. So, again, all of these crises intersect to create such a, what seems like such an intractable mess.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. And, you know, we've discussed um, this issue and I know I've spoken even with um, professor at Yale, Monica Bell, about defunding the police and, you know, what police reform would look like. I think a lot of Americans, after watching this Particular scenario would say, What's the point in calling the police? Because, you know, it seems like to the average person that is their job to protect the community. And if they're not going to do that or even attempt to or appear to attempt to do that in a, you know, effective way, then it really does make you wonder what the point is in calling
3: 911. Exactly. You know, and there's lots of research and lots of evidence to suggest that. Particularly, as as we were just saying, non-white Americans will actively not call police because they know that so often police actually make these situations worse and particularly put at risk non-white Americans in terms of police violence. And so that's a common story across the United States. And I mean, I should say not just the United States, it's um, also a problem even in Australia and, and across the West. But in the United States, it seems particularly acute because you're right, watching watching this video, you know, watching that 73 minutes of security camera footage of the, of the hallways of, of a primary school and police kind of sanitising their hands or looking at their phones or, or, you know, not doing anything to intervene is genuinely shocking. And I think you're right, would be shocking even for people who are not particularly engaged or receptive to arguments to defund the police.
0: Yeah. Um, Emma, to shift to... Well, actually, maybe to finish off that point, because there was something that, that mm. I think has happened between when we last spoke, which was that there were proposals on the table for some very incremental so-called reforms to um, improve gun control in the United States. Where have we got to now in terms of those reforms that were proposed? Um, you know, Do you think that they are going to make any particular difference to the situation, and is is it more like just kind of take a baby step, and hopefully the the next steps might come down the track, or is, you know is that wishful thinking?
3: Look, I I certainly think that's the logic. Um, so about a month after after the shooting in Texas, Congress actually, you're right, did did pass some gun control reform um, i think Bi- president binder did sign it into law on the 20th 25th of june and it, it's the most significant gun reform um, legislation in in the last three decades but you know the word you used is incremental you know even saying it's the most significant reform in three decades is not actually saying much because it didn't the legislation doesn't do a whole lot um, it it does things like make background checks for under 21 year olds a little bit tougher and it encourages states to implement red flag laws. So, you know, if somebody has a history of violence or a history of threatening violence, that if they have guns, they'll be taken away. Um, so that is significant. You know, it is important, an important step. But it certainly, I think, many people would argue it's not enough to, to prevent these kind of massacres from happening again.
0: Mm. And just concerningly, you know, in the news very recently, we saw a Democratic party member Pramila Jayapal, who, um, you know, she was very worried for her life because there was a man outside of her house threatening to kill her. This is alleged because um, apparently according to police they can't build up enough evidence yet to arrest the person and actually charge them, that he was arrested but let go. Uh, Mm -hmm. But apparently he'd also said um, to go back to India he yelled out to her from outside her house and he'd been carrying a concealed weapon and the police had at least taken that away from him but you know it seems that this type of violence um, is escalating and even you know the the politically motivated types perhaps people have been emboldened by the Donald Trump era.
3: Look I think that's true you know as we I we've discussed many times before Amy like Donald Trump didn't create this situation where there's the kind of like um, underbelly to, to US politics. It was always there, but he certainly emboldened those factors and continues to do so. And the kind of right-wing media ecosystem in the United States continues to do so, and particularly to target young, progressive, non-white members of Congress who speak often about, you know, the fear they experience, the threats against their lives that they experience constantly. And you you see it across kind of all levels of politics and even outside of politics. Like there's an example um, happening kind of, that's just happened in the last last few weeks in in the wake of the Roe v. Wade um, decision, the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, where conservatives are in this kind of media war now against doctors who provide reproductive services to women and particularly doctors who provide abortion services to to minors who have experienced sexual violence where those doctors are named in conservative media and pictures are shown and and there are clear i think linkages though they would of course be denied between that and violence against you know, not only politicians, progressive politicians, but also even medical doctors.
0: Yeah. Well, it's um interesting that you bring that up because there are a lot of reports in the media floating around now. I recently saw a Washington Post article um, documenting some of the experiences of women who are pregnant. So an example being... Um, that a woman with a life-threatening ectopic pregnancy sought emergency care at a hospital in Michigan after a doctor in her state worried that the presence of a fetal heartbeat might mean treating her would, you know, cause legal implications with the restrictions on abortion. And as we all know, an ectopic pregnancy has no likelihood of succeeding. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we've got, you know, in Kansas City, hospital administrators, um, temporarily... They required pharmacist approval before dispensing medications used to stop postpartum hemorrhages because they can also be used for abortions. Uh, In Wisconsin, a woman bled for over 10 days from an incomplete miscarriage after emergency room staff would not remove the fetal tissue amid the confusing legal landscape. These are, you know, some of them are intended consequences, but others are perhaps, Mm. whether you're a cynic or not, unintended consequences of the Roe v. Wade um, decision. I wonder, you know, what are your reflections on the the aftermath, especially the practical implications, you know, taking into account some of those examples, we're now seeing different states respond because um, there are different rules in different states and different mechanisms. Could you just give us a sense of um, what's happening? Because I know there's like a federal government role uh, to play a part and that the federal government is seeking to do what they can, um, but there's also other states who are basically deciding whether they... Uh, either block the abortion ban or whether the abortion ban immediately goes through because they have these types of trigger laws.
3: Yeah. Look, I mean, the short explanation, Amy, is that it's it's an, a complete mess and an utter catastrophe. You know, there are so many stories like the ones you outlined of women just just suffering violence at the hands of medical practitioners who refuse to intervene because they're worried about their own liability because their legal status is so unclear because of this decision. And, you know, I don't think that is necessarily an unintended consequence of this Supreme Court decision so much as just a complete disregard, a complete lack of care for women mm. and children and, and their abusers. And, and part of the decision's effects, as you say, to make people and medical practitioners in particular worried about their liability, worried about what's going to happen to them, even if they live in a state where um, abortion in some form is legal, and and that that mess is kind of happening across and in between states. So so the the information suggests that that I've read that something like twenty six states will, if they haven't already, severely restrict or totally outlaw abortion in the new future. And some states are also enacting laws around crossing state lines for um, procuring abortion services and penalties for that, penalties for doctors. And so there are jurisdictional issues there as well and the the federal government you know you mentioned federal government action there has been a little bit of action biden issued an executive order of the on the 8th of july so this is a kind of order from the office of the president that was about protecting women's digital information so there's been a lot of concern around digital surveillance and whether you know period tracking apps will be used against women in legal action. Um, So there's been some protection there of women's digital rights and also doing things like asking the Department of Health um, Services to increase medical access, access to medical abortion. But it's really unclear what this means. It's unclear how this executive order will play out. No one really knows what's happening. And, And again, you know, I think this is kind of reflective of just the morass of US politics because... The Biden administration knew for a long time that this was coming. There was that leak from the Supreme Court saying this decision was imminent, but it took till the eighth of July to even issue an executive order. You know, when this decision happened, Nancy Pelosi, the the Democratic Speaker of the House, read a poem. Like mm. this is the kind of political inaction yes. that we're talking about. And and the suffering that, you know, that you outlined Earlier is the result, you know, and it doesn't seem like anything is going to be done at least anytime soon in order to mitigate against that.
0: Yeah, I did also see that there was uh, a vote in the House of Representatives recently on two bills um that did pass the House, and it was around protecting abortion access. Um, however, it wasn't and is not going to pass. The Senate, it seems, because of the numbers there. So it's really as uh, the Guardian's been reporting, you know really a more of a symbol. Um, a symbolic act than anything that's going to be particularly meaningful, but it does raise the question about the midterm elections and you know the situation for the Democratic Party and also Joe Biden's current approval ratings. I wonder if you could share you know the situation as it stands politically for the Democrats and whether there's any chance and any hope, I would say for um, people who care about human rights and access to safe abortion.
3: Mm-hmm. Look, that, that's a really good question. And I think um, Democrats and, and progressive Democrats, you know, those people who do care about access to reproductive rights for women are very worried. They're really worried about the, the November midterms where, you know, the whole lower house is up for election and about a, a third of the Senate is up for um, election as well. And Republicans, I think, are pretty confident that they're going to at least win back the um, you know, one of those houses, potentially the House of Representatives, and they're already talking about instituting a, a federal ban on abortion. So so the stakes, I think, you know, not only in this issue, we haven't even talked about climate change, um, but in, in that particular area as well, progressives in the House and in the Senate are incredibly worried that, you know, they, they've had their two year window before the midterms and that their time is almost up. And, you know, I would say anything can happen. November is still a long way away and, and far be it from me to to predict the results of an election. But history at least suggests, the pattern of history at least suggests that Democrats will most likely lose control of, of one of the Houses of Congress. And and the implications of that, you know, as we've kind of only briefly touched on, are, are really serious.
0: Yeah, Definitely. And, um, it's also concerning because a number of, um, branches of the Republican party have rejected adding language to their platforms to allow an abortion to save the life of a mother. So, you know, even something as minimum as that, as an exception is pretty much not happening in some more extreme corners of the Republican party. Um, I wanted to quickly just talk about Joe Biden and his overseas trips because we have seen in the news he's, you know, flitted off to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia, which has been quite controversial given uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered um, and, you know, there's some excellent documentaries about it uh, around to, to understand what happened. But, you know, to see Joe Biden kind of, head over there because of the oil crisis and presumably other political reasons. You know, Do you think that that was a wise move, especially given the lack of outcome from that meeting?
3: Yeah, it, uh, I mean, the United States has always had this really strange relationship with Saudi Arabia. And it was really striking to me to see such a kind of almost standard presidential trip to the Middle East. Um, in light of all these crises that we just talked about at home because this this trip is not dissimilar to previous trips made by US presidents where they're roundly criticised for for visiting Saudi Arabia in particular and treating Saudi Arabia as an ally because of Saudi oil reserves. And, you know, Amy, as you said, that's exactly why Biden went. He went because... Of, of really high gas prices at home, inflationary pressures, and pressures on the cost of living, to basically ask the Saudis for an increase in oil production, which he kind of got, but but um, not in a very significant way, I suppose, and not in a way that's going to provide him immediate domestic relief at home. So so this was a kind of weirdly dis uh, a weird disjuncture, I think, between domestic politics, domestic crises, and the kind of standard us um approach to international affairs where a country like saudi arabia despite human rights abuses despite the climate crisis is kind of treated as as a regular ally and this is treated like a regular meeting but that's the kind of unreality of us politics i suppose
0: yeah it's um essentially the saudi arabia agree that it would boost oil production or up to, to up to um, 13 million barrels in addition to what Mm -hmm. they're already producing. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of people would question was it worth doing what he's done um, if they, you know, had moral qualms with that? Um, But obviously, Mm -hmm. as you say, it comes up every time a United States president makes that trip. Um, We'll probably have to finish it there, Emma. There's just so much more to talk about, but you've done an amazing job filling us in about... (laughs) the the myriad of issues that the United States uh, faces and, you know, how that definitely does affect us here in Australia as well. So I appreciate your time today and hopefully we can check in again soon. For sure. Thanks so much, Amy. I've just been speaking with Dr Emma Shortis. She is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, an historian and an author of a book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.